Let's do it. This is Star Wars the Rest of Us. Oh, sh**. No, it's in this episode uh, yes. of Star Wars. I was trying to remember that. <laughs> I almost started talking you through it. I know. In this episode of Star Wars the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about the science of why charge more works. This is Star Wars the Rest of Us, episode 421. Welcome to Startups the Rest of Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Mike. And I'm the guy that knows the intro. Oh, be quiet. <laughs> and we're here to share experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. How are you doing this week, Rob? I'm doing good. And by my calculation, you've done the intro 210 times because we tend to trade off back and forth. Mm -hmm. How is it that you haven't memorized it yet? I was distracted. I was looking. You know what? The thing is, I missed last episode. It was episode 420. You know, marijuana just became legal in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I must have been high. So that's what we're doing. (laughs) All right. This is going to be a good show today, folks. So for me, weeks are going well. Uh, MicroConf tickets are on sale inside Founder Cafe, right? And then I think when this goes live, will it be on sale to our email launch list? Yes. Head over to microconf.com if you are interested, get on that launch list. May, you may have missed the, the first email, but they'll get a subsequent one, I suppose, if they get on the list today. Yeah, I think that the episode that comes out today, the people who will be getting that email for microconf tickets are going to be previous attendees. And then next Tuesday, it's going to be going out to the uh, the rest of the list. There you go. And Growth Edition sells out every year. So, you know, you want to, you want to get on that email list if you're interested in it. How about you? Well, I uh, received my Scotch Advent calendar yesterday, so December is looking fantastic at the moment. It's a family tradition, isn't it? Uh, well, it just started last year, but yeah. <laughs> Two years, that's in this day and age, I think that's a tradition. Sure. And aside from that, just working on uh, MicroConf sponsorships. So that's in the works. If you're interested in any of the MicroConf sponsorship options, give me a uh, drop me an email at sponsors at microconf.com and we'll, I'll send you over the rate card and we'll schedule the time to chat about it and see if it's a good fit for you. Other than that, I am continuing to push forward on Tiny Seed. Did you listen to the episode last week? I have not had a chance to. I was high, remember? Yeah, that's right. That's right. All week. No, so that was fun. Einar and I just, you know, talked it through, talked about what we're up to and, and why we're up to it and our take, just a cursory take on kind of the the funding landscape and even the landscape of what, you know, what it takes to bootstrap a SaaS these days. So continuing to, you know, to move it forward. I mean, there's there's not so much I can talk about publicly, but definitely, you know, meeting with a lot of founders and just discussing ideas and thoughts and stuff. So it's it's a fun time. It's You know how it is. It's like the early days of anything. I mean, this is really, it literally is a startup and we're kind of bootstrapping it, you know, even though that's weird. It's like we we don't have any, you know, funding for Einar and I at this point, right? I mean, eventually, you know, once we raise the fund to, to you know, to actually back Tiny Seed, we'll have a small uh, stipend or something coming out of it, but it's not like, oh yeah, you're you know you're doing a startup and you're going to raise five or ten million and and crank it up. It it really is that it's it's the ethos of everything I've ever done, where it's you're capital efficient and you're scrappy and you're just you know trying to hack your way through it. So it's fun. I enjoy these days of it. I mean, there's just there's just so much creativity involved, right? It's like it's a it's a problem that we're looking at from a new angle, and so there aren't you know overt solutions that others have tried, and so we're really trying to figure it out and innovate on something that, that I, th- I think we believe needs some innovation. 
You know why I think it's so fun is because you're so early on that like you haven't actually run into any real problems yet. That's exactly <laughs> it, right? It's like any startup that it's fun until you have to actually start writing code or you have to actually start selling to customers or supporting them or whatever. And then all the headaches crop up. You know, I do want to point out that you and I had a, a, a quote unquote argument over whether or not it was a startup and you kept denying it and you've referred to it as a startup several times already. Dang it. No, it's kind of right. Because I said I'd never do another startup again. And yes. then I was like, well, I'll never do another SaaS app again from scratch. Well, and then I had all these caveats. Yep. Ah, just never say never. That's that's my advice. I should get you a, a new bike so you can backpedal faster. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so what are we talking about this week? Well, today's podcast episode is inspired by a, a tweet that I saw on Twitter from Patrick McKenzie. And the episode is titled The Science of Why Charge More Works. And obviously, uh, we'll link this up in the show notes uh, exactly where that tweet was. But Patrick has been talking about essentially charging more for as long as I can kind of remember. And his tweet said, Hacker News comment, I moved into a low-wage area and started freelancing. My clients likely think I'm too cheap, but I'm making double what I did before and overwhelmed with work. Suggestions? And the second commenter said, Patio 11 would tell you to charge more. And he says, well, my work for today is done. <laughs> and uh, it, it's it's just interesting to see that, uh, and I even commented on this, that like it's funny how just repeating the, the same two words over and over could practically make you a career for the rest of your life. And you just say charge more, and that's your advice in almost any situation. And, and inevitably, in a lot of them, it's going to work. I thought we'd talk through a little bit about, one, why does it work? But also just talk through kind of the, the science and mindset of this as well. Yeah, talk through some specifics, right, of because you, you can't always just charge more. Eventually, it stops working. And, and there's ways to charge more and do your grandfather. And how does it, you know, I mean, there's specifics on that. And that's what we'll talk about today. Yeah, I, I hear you. He's developed the brand. I mean, he just said it so much because there are other people saying it, right? I mean, if you look back at, at microconf talks, for example, like really early on, it was like Jason Cohen said it, Heaton Shaw said it, I said it in two of my talks. But Patrick McKenzie has said it over and over and over, and it's become a brand. And I think that's a cool, it's a cool thing to have. Like, you know, each of us develops our own little corners of the startup ecosystem, I think. Yeah. And the other comment that he had made in that tweet stream was that I think the Gmail folder where I keep my thank you for a salary negotiation post is in the upper seven figures in mostly $25,000 chunks. And given that salary is a vector, not a scalar and compounds, that blog post has probably moved, it says X zero million dollars around. So basically what, seven, eight figures, eight figures. He's saying eight figures. Yeah. Yep. Which is huge. I mean, to, to be able to have like solid data that you can point to that has shown that you have been able to increase, you know, personal revenue for people and salaries for people is just amazing. But I, I mean, there's there's also correlations between what he said in terms of charge more, not just as a person who is employed for a company, but also in terms of raising prices for your software products. Yeah, right. It's like charge more for your skills. Charge more if you're a salaried employee by negotiating. And I I like that post is really good. We should find it and link to it. But he writes a really good post about negotiation. It's stuff that you that I had done like intuitively, but I hadn't realized I hadn't put it into words in a framework like he did. I negotiated every job I ever had. And I made more money than the people around me. And I was just doing it because I was like, well, I know that I'm valuable. You know, it was this internal thing of like, I, I know that I have chops at, at whatever it was, being a developer or project manager or a tech leader, you know, whatever the role was. And I tended to be, you know, in these environments a little better than other people around me. And so uh, salary negotiation is is something that you should do if you have not. And then when you become a contractor, 
then you learn you can just ratchet that rate up, especially once you have referrals coming in. And then when you launch any type of, of product or service, then you know you, you learn to do the same thing. So it's all in line with that, you know, the same idea of just, it's not even charging what you're worth. It's like, no, really figure out how to, how to maximize this and charge based on the value that you or your product provides. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into a blog post that I recall reading years and years ago. It's more than a decade ago from Joel Spalski. And we'll link this up in the show notes as well, but it's called Camels and Rubber Duckies. And in this blog post, he essentially talks a little bit about economic theory and how to identify pricing for a product and how do you maximize revenue. And of course, you know, it goes through a bunch of, has a bunch of different charts and, you know, as the metrics there, it says, well, if you charge this, you're going to make X amount of money. And if you charge this other thing over here, you're going to make Y amount of money. And is that more or less? And are you, are you more profitable as a result? And it's like, well, it depends on whether or not you are able to sell just as many as you were before. If you're still, if you're charging more, if you charge more and you're selling more than, you know, if the math works out, yes, you'll make more money. But at some point you're going to raise the prices and the number of units that you sell starts dropping as a result. And at some point further than that, you're going to start making less money. So where is that point? How do you, how do you figure that out? I think one of the interesting pieces of Patrick's charge more philosophy is just the the fact that it forces you into situations where you are price testing. You're checking to see if charging that higher amount of money is going to make you more or if you're not going to get as many sales. Yeah. And here's the thing. There are multiple stages of startups. We've talked about this over and over, right? There's the super early days and then there's like right before product market fit and there's after product market fit and then there's the growth stage. And in each of those, you have to approach things differently. I mean, your, your thought process is a little different. And in the very, very early days, literally your first five or 10 customers, I don't know that you want to charge more, but you should charge something. And I've seen startup founders be like, yeah, well, I'm going to, I'm going to comp, you know, the first 10 early access users just as thanks for whatever. And they get lifetime accounts. And I'm like, that is a terrible idea because those 10 people are the people that are most eager to use your product and they're going to get value from it. Why should they get that for free? Maybe give them a discount. Maybe, maybe not, you know? And then as you're getting to product market fit, you should be trying to push push that price up. Once you've hit it, then that's where you go. I mean, every six months or every year, your product is getting better. It's a SaaS app, I'm going to assume, or something that you're developing, you know, people are using ongoing that you're developing features for, and it's becoming more valuable to them. So they should pay more, you know, unless the only time you can't necessarily do that all the time is if you have a bunch of competitors and they essentially, you know, you're kind of commoditized or, you know, they're implementing these same features at the kind of a similar rate to what you are. And you don't have enough differentiation to basically be able to raise prices without someone saying, well, I can just, you know, switch over here. So switching costs are involved then. And then as you scale up, I mean, you'll see these companies, you know, once they do become, you look at a HubSpot or a Salesforce or, you know, someone who, who goes beyond that, they, I mean, their pricing just gets crazy, right? Where it's crazy from our, our little B to SMB perspective when we typically think of, yeah, I'm gonna charge someone 50 or hundred bucks a month and they're charging five, 10, 20 grand a month, depending on plans. I mean, it's, so all that to say, I like this as a sentiment. I think I think most people, especially early stage, especially beginners, they just don't charge enough. And I think we're going to talk about a little perspective here of how to do this, right? Of how to increase prices without just making that your default. Because at a certain point, as you've said from camels and rubber duckies, it's a losing proposition, right? 
I think one of the reasons why you see larger companies like HubSpot charging so much more and, and in amounts that founders of smaller companies look at and say, that's just a ridiculous and absurd amount of money to charge, we're a little disconnected from I'll say like large company purchasing decisions. I mean, I'm, me personally, like I've worked at a extremely large company, there's 25,000 employees, but that was almost 20 years ago at this point. And I was not in any way, shape or form involved with any purchasing decision ever at the company. So by the time I moved on, like I've never really worked for a, a large, what I would say a large company or been in this position where I'm involved in those purchasing decisions. So I don't have the experience or the the mindset of how those decisions are made. And I think that's, that contributes to why we don't necessarily understand it as well. But I think that if you try to put that in perspective, how big is the company and how much money do they make on a annual basis? And if you're a one person or two person company, you're probably making less than half a million dollars a year. If you are a 300 person company or a 500 person company, you're making a heck of a lot more than that, probably talking $50, $100 million a year. So for them to spend a couple thousand dollars a month is not that big a deal. To you, it is because that's a huge chunk of your budget. To them, it's a really super tiny percentage and they, for the most part, just don't care. Yeah. No, that's right. And that's where, especially if you're going up market and to companies you know, of any kind of size, they're not price comparing nearly as much as we think they are because they're not consumers and they're not anywhere close. The further you you move up the chain from consumers, the less price comparison that goes on and the more, I don't know, it's like politi- politics and getting this person on board and convincing this whole team to do things. There's just so many other factors in it that price is one, but there's many others. But when you're working with consumers, price tends to be you know the highest factor. There's a lot of price sensitivity selling to, you know, I met with someone who selling software to uh, gamers, to PC gamers. And it's like, ouch, like there, if someone comes in with an offering that is a dollar less than yours, you're going to lose people. You know, they will go through the pain of switching to save a dollar or two a month. And so it's, you know, it's just a totally different ballgame when you're doing that. Yeah, I think that the mistake a lot of people make is when you say consumer, I would almost lump in like freelancers and companies with less than two or three employees. And I know that's not a direct comparison because if you're selling consumer products versus business products, you know, there is a very big difference between the actual person who's purchasing it. But in terms of mindset, those very small business owners have a very close mindset to the consumer. So it's not about what they do. It's about how they approach their buying decisions. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was I was talking with Einar the other day and I'm trying to, you know, I have kind of mental classifications for business type or, or, or customer type. And obviously B2C is one a lot of us think of. Literally, you know, it's Verizon or it's if you're selling software, you know, FTP software to the masses. And then I was like, you know, there's this B to prosumer, which is kind of hobbyist. So let's say you're selling to photographers or, you know, who do it on the side who are most are not full time, but it's kind of this hobby they do on the weekend. And they most do it to kind of pay for their gear. They, they charge people so that they can afford more gear because there's not so much money in it. You know, so it's like B to prosumer. And then there's B to A, it's B to aspirational folks. So you could think of it like, I mean, frankly, it's like the smart passive income crowd, right? Or, you know, it, it's folks who aspire to be something. People negatively use the term wannapreneur, which I don't, I don't, you know, I feel like it's kind of I don't know. It's a negative thing to say about someone, but it, it's folks who want to be entrepreneurs, but they're really aspiring. So they are willing to spend some money, but the churn is really high and they definitely are 
consumers, but their behavior is different than a, someone buying cell phone or cable service, you know, because they are trying to invest in a business. So I actually think the behaviors of those three are, are different. And then I like what you're saying. There's this B to VSB, very small business, which is basically the one to, you know, one or two or three person company. And they're going to, they're still going to have price sensitivity, but I don't think as much as, as a consumer. And then, you know, there's B to probably just regular small business and then B to enterprise, right? I mean, there's a mid-market and there's you can go all, all types of categories in there, but each of those is going to have their own pros and cons in terms of price sensitivity as well as churn, sales cycle, all that stuff. Yeah, I think you can debate all day about exactly where the the different levels are, whether it's five employees or ten employees or whatever. But the the reality is that like as you move from the general consumer up market, you know, you traverse through that spectrum of purchasers, price sensitivity is a lot less. And going back to the camels and rubber duckies, trying to optimize your revenue is about doing price testing to see where the different breaking points are and. The simple explanation for charge more is you increase prices, you measure the total revenue, and you repeat doing that until revenue starts to decline. And then you find out why it declined and try to solve that particular problem. Because it could be that you got your revenue to a certain point and then you tried to charge more and you come to find out that, oh, there's a, a credit card limit for a maximum purchase on a monthly basis from a single vendor. So it's maybe it's $500 or $1,000. And Joel talks about that in his blog post. But they're, they're just not allowed to purchase something that costs more than that without a signature. And maybe that's why your revenue declined. It, it may not necessarily be directly because your price barred them from, but it could be something ancillary to that. And you just have to figure out why is that? Are you not providing the value or is there some other external factor? And once you find out those, see if you can try to solve the problem. And if you can, raise prices and charge more. Right. And that's, you know, again, the mistake some founders make is people will cancel, especially in the early days. You're trying to find product market fit. I'm trying to get people to use it. People are canceling saying, ah, it's not worth the money. That's not to say it's like too expensive. What they're saying is you haven't built something that they actually want to use. If you built something killer that they really need in their day-to-day -day or really change their workflow, it would be worth that money plus more. And this is something I talk about. It's aspirational pricing. So in the early days of Drip, Drip was very simple. It was before it was really an ESP and automation and all that stuff. And people were canceling saying, yeah, you know, it's just not worth the money or I can switch to MailChimp or this and that. And I said, okay, well, it was 49 bucks a month. I said, how can we make this into a product that people don't say that about that they say oh it's totally worth 49 bucks a month and that is the like the thread that i kept pulling to get us to product market fit is i don't want to lower my prices because i don't want another app that you know starts at 10 or 20 dollars a month because the churn is high it's so hard to find that you know enough customers to to make something worthwhile I mean, this one of the big things when I looked at starting Drip, I have this list of, of things I wanted with my next idea. It was after Hittail. My next app, I want it to, you know, be $99 a month was the initial aspiration, but I wound up being 49 by the time we launched. And uh, I don't even remember what the others were. That was the most important one, to be honest. I just wanted to move up market because I wanted to build an app that that didn't have the struggles, you know, and, and peak out, top out. Because if your lowest plan is 10 bucks a month, it's hard unless people are moving up often uh, to the higher plans. It's it's hard to grow a SaaS app to the levels that I think a lot of us want to get to, the mid-six and seven-figure levels. The other blog post that kind of struck me as being highly relevant to this was also another one from Joel Spalski that he wrote about a year later in 2005. It's called Price is a Signal. And in this 
post, he basically talks about how the price that you put on something sends a signal to people about the what the quality of it. A low price uh, in relation to other things that are on the market that, are, that do the same type of thing says that it's a low quality. If it's a much higher price, it signals that it's a higher quality and it's a better product. That does not necessarily mean it's true. It's simply the perception that you are putting forth as to why the pricing would be that way. Because there's got to be some justification for the pricing. And to the buyer, they don't really have any of the inside knowledge. So their natural assumption is, oh, well, it must be better. And they would really have to dig in and try your product and almost do a side-by-side comparison against other products. And not every customer is going to have that kind of time on their hands. Some of them just need to make a decision and move on. And they're like, well, I just want the better product. So I'm just going to pay the higher price point for it. And that's especially true. I think when you get into the higher pricing tiers where those people are less set for less price sensitive and they're like, I don't care what the price is. We just need something and we need it to work. And we need it to be good. So we'll just buy the highest price thing we can find or something that's you know reasonably high priced. I mean, you don't want to spend $50,000 a month when you can spend five. But you know, if the pricing is listed on the website and it's $300 a month and you find something else that's $900 a month, what are you going to do? If you don't care about price, you'll probably go with the $900 a month because you've got the funds to spare. It's not probably not your money anyway, and you need something to work. You don't want to go to your boss and say, Hey, this didn't work because we went with a $300 product. Yep. I think it's, I think it's good. I think price signaling is a, you know, definitely a real thing that folks should consider and being the premium offering. It's an interesting marketing play, interesting positioning play. I think, you know, WP engine did this really well in the early days. They just said, we're going to be the, the, you know, the expensive solution. And then we're going to, but we're going to deliver on it. You know, you have to deliver on that. The interesting thing about what you just said was I also think that the price can send the opposite signal as well. Like if you price too low, it can tell people that your product is just not any good. You know, you can look at a bunch of different industries for that, but I think one that kind of pops out in my head is like the app store. And like you look on there and there's tons and tons of apps that are either free or for 99 cents. And I don't know, I personally look at them and say, well, you know, if it's 99 cents, how great can it be at this point? Because there's a lot of things that charge more than 99 cents. It used to be like that was kind of a standard thing to charge. And now it's not. I mean, there's a bunch of apps that I pay five or $10 for. Yeah, I I still buy apps. I, I think the app store is kind of a, how do you say, it's... Crap factory? <laughs> it is a crap factory. No, I'm tr- I'm trying to think of the word. It, it's something about it, it's. I was going to say it's like not a true market because Apple has artificially incentivized having cheaper apps, and it's because so you know this thing. It's like you want your complement to be free, right? Whatever product you have, if your complement is free, then you become very valuable. So, or you want your complement to be commoditized and as low price as, as possible. So, you think about Microsoft with Windows. What is their complement? Like, what is the thing you need to use in order to use Microsoft Windows? Well, you need hardware, right? You need a, a box to run it on. And it was great for them that there wasn't just one other provider. There was HP and there was Dell and there were all these providers. And that was like, that's the way to be. And then if you're a hardware maker, what you want is to have specific hardware that no one else can use. And you want basically the operating system to be commoditized, right? So that your complement is free. And that's where Apple with this app store, what is the complement to an iPhone or an iPad? Well, the software component is obviously the operating system, which they control. And then there's apps. And they want apps to be as cheap as possible because they 
want there to be a bazillion of them and they want to have the big ecosystem that everyone comes to, right? It's the same thing that Amazon has done with Kindles, with Kindles and Kindle books. They artificially depressed the pricing and they've had lawsuits about this, right? Where they're like, you know, there's class action lawsuits. And if you go to sell a Kindle book, I think, you know, you can make it between 99 cents and is it 9.99 and they give you 70% of that. But if you make it $10 or 10.01, then they keep 70% of that, right? So you only get 30%. So in order to get the same amount, you have to jack your price up to whatever it is, you know, whatever the math on that is, $30 or 25 bucks or something. And it pissed people off, right? Because traditionally books have been, when they're hardback, they're 25 or 30, and then soft cover 15 or 20. And Amazon basically came and said, nope, we want the complement of the Kindle, which is the content, which are the books. We want them to be inexpensive. And so it's an interesting, I mean, I'm kind of saying this, it's not a, uh, something I'm saying in theory like this, we see this happening. And so, but I think that's a little different just because of the, the ecosystem of, you know, like somebody else really kind of controls the pricing in the marketplace. You have to go through somebody else. I think that's the issue versus if you you're selling a SaaS app yep. or a, a book from your own website, you can price it at whatever you want. There's no, there's no outside influencers to essentially anchor your pricing or artificially influence it. So I would say that that's, it feels like that's a little different, but I, I agree like that that's what they do. It is different. And that's what I was saying about the app store. You were saying, if I see an app store app, that's 99 cents, I think this is probably crap. And I don't because I know that that's artificially low because of what Apple has done if that makes sense. So yes, on the open market, you don't typically buy, you know, FTP apps or whatever it is for 99 cents, right? I mean, before the app store, they were 10, 20, $30. And then the app store has driven a bunch of them down. So that's what I was saying is I think you can have artificially low pricing if, if there's someone manipulating it. Yeah. What I was saying was like, that's my inclination to feel that way. But I also objectively know that it's not true is really what it comes down to. Because like you can you can recognize something and feel a certain way. And that's how I feel when I look at those things. But it's not like I objectively know that that's also not true. Right. Because I have plenty of 99 cent apps that I use all the time that are good apps, you know. I do think this uh, kind of brings the about the question of like, how do you go about raising your prices if you're already kind of, I'll say, entrenched in a certain customer base or you have traffic sources coming in and they're already accustomed to seeing like prices in a certain range. Let me reframe that a little bit just because I want to be very clear on on what I'm trying to say here. If you're marketing to a certain demographic of people who are anywhere from that prosumer range that we talked about to like four or five employees in the in the company, how do you then increase your prices such that you can do this type of testing and still be attracting the right types of people. Because at some point, if you start changing your pricing enough, you're going to put yourself in a position where the only people who would buy it is in this different demographic, but you don't have the incoming traffic sources from that dif different demographic. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that'd be the hard part. If you really wanted to, like double, triple, quadruple prices or something, that, that would be hard. Obviously, if you're going to incrementally go up, let's say 20% or 30%, you can email your whole customer base. You can say, look, we're going to grandfather you for a certain amount of time. And you can email all your trial users and go on social and promote it and say, hey, we are about to raise prices. If you've been waiting on this, then sign up now. And we did that with Drip a couple times because we raised prices every, you know, I don't know, nine to 12 months. 
And then you'll get this big influx. You kind of suck all the air out of the room and you get this big influx of new trials and hopefully they convert because then it's like, hey, you're, you know, you're grandfathered in for this, this amount of time. But what you're saying is different than that. You're saying, you know, you're going to double prices and the traffic that's coming isn't even associated with that. I would almost say if I really wanted to do that, oh man, that'd be tough. I would either rip off the Band-Aid and instantly try to, if you're going to do that, you're almost like pivoting or you're repositioning as something different. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is like, you almost have to reposition yourself. Like if you're changing pricing dramatically enough that you're going into that, it's, you know, a five, 10, 20% increase is not a big deal. But when you're doubling or tripling, if you're anywhere within that, like halfway to the point where it's no longer makes sense for them to buy, like you can really hurt yourself. Right, you could. And I, I think I would it has to be very calculated. You can't just go and do that one day. You have to probably need a brand new, I mean, you need new positioning. You need a new marketing message. You need to justify, like, what's your reasoning that this is now worth twice what it was last week? So I would drill into that fact of like, it's worth that because we are now built for plumbers and they should pay a lot of money for software. Or we are now the most premium. We have this feature that no one else has. And therefore, like, you got to drill into what what is the factor that is differentiating you that allows you to do that. But do you have to justify it? Because if presumably if the new market that you're going into is not a current traffic source and they haven't really seen your product or pricing before, then they wouldn't necessarily know. And there's plenty of stories out there and, and anecdotes of people saying, oh, well, I doubled my prices and I doubled my profit. And people are like, well, why don't you double your prices again or 10x them? I think Jason Cohen talked about that at MicroConf one day where he's like, oh, yeah, just they 10x their prices. And they're like, you know, sales did not change. We make 10x more money. He's like, do it again. And they're like, what? So it, I definitely think it's possible to do it. It's just a question of like, do you have a plan for backing off if that goes wrong? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you could always roll it back. I mean, remember Intercom did this maybe three years ago where they were, I believe they were either doubling or quadrupling pricing. It was a huge jump. And the people got so mad that they just, they announced it and then just backed away from it. And they said, we're not going to do that. And then recently, I think, aren't they doubling prices again? They're like going up two or three X. And I think they're having the same backlash, but they're so big now. I, I don't know if it matters, you know? Or they're just measuring the response and saying, well, we're going to double the pricing, but only a quarter of our customer base is going to leave. So we have less strain on our servers and we don't need to deal with as many customers and we're making more money. So, Yeah. And I think they're grandfathering for like a year. And so I think they may just do it and just hope people don't, they don't lose as many. That seems like the Netflix strategy yeah. where they like grandfathered everybody in for like, they announced it and then they grandfathered everybody in for like two years and there was an initial uproar, but they're like, hey, but your price isn't going to change for two years. And then like, oh, okay. And then two years later, it silently like went up and nobody, nobody cared. Yeah. Was it, was it two years? I thought it was a year. I think it was. Yeah. I think it was, it might've been one year and then they changed it to two. I don't remember. I thought it was, it seemed like a while. It was, I mean, with Netflix, here's the thing with Netflix though that's different than a SaaS app. Most SaaS apps we would run across is Netflix has whatever it is. What is it? 30, 40 million subscribers. Yeah. I don't know. It's somewhere in that, you know, it's tens of millions of subscribers for sure. And they add new subscribers each quarter. You know, let's say, Hey, we added one or two or 3 million new, but if they only, if they grandfathered everyone permanently, like that would seriously debilitate their business. So this is where that B2C comes in. It's like, you're dealing with such a volume play and you already have such a huge customer base that raising it by that dollar a month is, you know, again, let's say they have 30 million customers. That's $30 million a month that they are making. And so if they piss a few people off and they leave, that's, you know, it's worth it to them because they already have such a huge user base. It's worth it to them to 
to raise it up. Whereas if you're a SaaS app and you have a thousand customers and you plan to add another, you know, 500 this year or something, it you got to think about the calculus there. Yeah, totally. I was when you were saying there's a difference between Netflix and you know the types of business we we run. I was like, oh, it's what 30, 40 million customers. <laughs> totally. That's yeah. That's the difference. that's the difference. <laughs> Our customer numbers are a rounding error to them. Yep, basically. So, I mean, uh, kind of on this topic, we talked a little bit about it uh, in terms of like the app store and, and low pricing. But what does this, you know, what does charge more really mean for freemium? Does that mean get rid of freemium? And I think you and I are probably in agreement that like, no, that's not what that means. It, you know, the freemium is a, it's a distribution strategy, not a pricing model. That's right. It's a, mar- it's a marketing approach, right? Right. Right. And you're not going to be able to sell at zero, which is technically a loss if you're using server resources and be able to make it up on volume. It's just not going to happen. But if you're relying on converting people and using that as a way to attract attention to your app in order to acquire those people, that's a totally different thing. Yep. I would agree with that. And by the way, the title of this episode is The Science of Why Charge More Works and Sciences in Quotes air quotes, right? Because it's not truly scientific, but there's there's just enough, there's a lot of data to back up the observations that we've made in this episode. And Patrick McKenzie has been saying it for six or seven years. First time I ever heard him say that was um, on Microsoft stage. I think that's the first time that I had met him in person. So that would make sense. Yeah, 2011. Yeah. Well, special thanks to Patrick McKenzie for you know speaking at MicroConf uh, all these years and also attending and being part of the community. But also thanks for the inspiration for this episode. I think that wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.